I'm Peter Coward, and you are listening to the Science Lives Podcast. My guest today is Alexis Katsis, an infectious disease expert working freelance as a relationship manager. From an early age, Alexis wanted to be a scientist and in college studied biology, earning a BS in biotechnology from Rutgers University. After working for two years, she decided to get an MS in public health microbiology to access jobs having a greater impact. Afterwards, she worked at the Centers for Disease Control, but again returned to school, this time to earn a PhD in microbiology and immunology so she could take on positions with greater responsibility. This led to jobs at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center, where, among other things, she led teams investing in projects to improve child health and to ensure the quality of laboratory data from clinical trials for HIV-AIDS and COVID-19. She has recently begun working freelance to have more time to pursue creative endeavors, such as hosting a podcast called Lux Sci, which explores the science of luxury. We'll hear about all these experiences and, of course, find out about what her job is like. Alexis, welcome to the Science Lives podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. As I mentioned in the intro, you're employed as a relationship manager. Can you begin by telling us about your job? Sure. I think to use a oft, often used analogy, it's a bit like herding cats. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the job of a, a relationship manager is, is basically what it sounds like. It's to manage the relationships. And I work in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as a, as a contractor there. And I work for a team that essentially provides an internal review for clinical trial protocols that the foundation is considering providing some funding for. And in that capacity, the team is answerable to the internal Gates program officers who are making those grants and also works closely with the principal investigators of the teams that are actually be executing the trials. And so there are a lot of relationships there to manage, to make sure that the internal teams get the, you know, the information that they think is crucial in order to make decisions around funding, to feel that the trial has the best chance of success. And then also there's a delicate relationship to manage with the principal investigators you know, who are experts in their field, and most of whom spent entire careers studying whatever disease they are proposing to do a trial for. And so it's a, it's a fine line to manage there to make sure that they feel that the review process is helpful and is not in any way saying that they're doing anything wrong. So uh, there's a lot of figuring out how to approach people or situations, figuring out how to word things, making sure that the review teams are adding value in the best possible way. So uh, that it, while my day usually looks like a lot of meetings and emails, <laughs> it does require a lot of thought and experience around how to manage a relationship well so that all parties feel that they're getting value out of an interaction. To what extent do you rely on your scientific background when managing these relationships? Quite a bit, actually. I think it's helpful for both the internal individuals and for the PI teams to interact with somebody who they feel like understands what they're trying to do and who they don't feel like they have to change or explain terminology to. I think that helps them. I think there's also a bit of credibility that comes with my having, not just on a PhD, but having worked on clinical trials myself. 
you know, trust is of the utmost in these types of relationship managing roles. And that trust, uh, a lot of times, especially in the sciences, is built on feeling like the other person has the experience to understand what you're trying to do. Right. And what characteristics make you good at your job? I am an extreme empath. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that can sometimes not be great in other situations, but I think is really good because I just always naturally try to strive to see things from the other person's perspective, right? You know, again, like I explained, seeing this from the principal investigator's perspective, they spent a lifetime doing this work, you know, and here comes this like program officer who's like, hey, by the way, we need to give your protocol yet another review after it's gone through institutional reviews and IRBs and all that other stuff. So just understanding that that's how they might be feeling. And then, okay, if that's how they're feeling, how can I approach them? What value can we provide for them? What's the value add for them to go through this process? And and I think that that's really been helpful. Right. Okay. And then what is it that you like about your job? I love that it's different all the time. (laughs) We get different reviews for different protocols. We get almost one, a new one a week. And so I get, and they're from all different areas, right? So from, you know, malaria to maternal child health. So it's just, it's really, the variety is really nice. And the interaction with people is great. I think one of the things that was always a bit challenging for me about working in a lab is that it can be lonely, depending on how big your lab is. I think my first job out of college, it was me and two people, and then the two people moved on, so it was just me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really enjoy interacting with people. And, you know, the the teams that I work with, oh, goodness, they are so smart and so experienced. You know, it's it's humbling, and it's also really amazing to watch people who have spent an entire lifetime dedicated to clinical pharmacology or biostatistics or regulatory issues to watch them work and to watch how they think. It's, I, I feel really privileged to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, it can be really exciting to be around people who are just absolutely at the top of their game, you know, and just know yeah. all the nuance about everything that, yeah, that just you're involved in. Wicked smart. I mean, this is how you know I'm an East Coaster. They're wicked smart. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And so you're working... Um, you're working freelance now as a contractor. How long, mm-hmm. and I know it's, it's been somewhat recent, but how long would a contract typically last and how do you find new clients and how, what's the, what does that all look like? There's so many different ways to do contract work. So there are kind of three different levels. One is independent contracting, which I do where I have an LLC and I contract myself out through that LLC. You can also, there's two different flavors of working with a contracting company. One is as an independent contractor that you have a company find work for you, and then sort of like an agent. And then the other is to work for an actual contracting company. You're on their staff, on their payroll, you get benefits through them. A big one is like McKinsey or uh, BCG. Those are big management contractors that most people have heard of. So yeah, so I'm an independent contractor. This and it's it's all about networking when you're contracting, right? It's I found this position because someone I used to work with at Gates was looking for somebody and somebody else knew I was looking and kind of connected us. And you know, we did an 
my situation is a little different. We did an initial kind of tryout period for both of us. Of, I think it was an initial like seven or eight month contract just to try it out to see if we both it was a good fit. And then we're now renegotiating the contract for a longer period of time. And sometimes it's based on you know yearly. Some people like to do yearly contracts. And sometimes it's based on the needs of the organization, how long they think they're going to need you for, how long they have the funding for to, to keep you on. At the point where you're looking for somebody else, it's then the networking thing again and yeah. the people that you've met and, and mm-hmm. reaching out to them and seeing what opportunities are available and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's really strange to sort of market yourself, yeah. <laughs> to sell yourself. It's a very different mindset and one that I think could probably be hard. I find it challenging sometimes, both as a woman and, and as a scientist, to sort of sell myself to talk about, oh, hey, I'm so great and you should hire me because of these things. It's not something we're usually taught how to do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about your your background then. So you were interested Mm -hmm. in science from an early age and studied biology uh, at Rutgers. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I was that weird kid in kindergarten that wanted to be a marine life biologist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My mother was a scientist. She uh, was in the PhD program when she met my dad and, you know, got her master's and didn't finish the PhD just because times were different back then. And she had to make a, a choice when they got married. And she worked uh, in labs for a while until I was born. Funny story, she worked in a, terat- a teratogenics lab. And so when I was born, her boss made me made her count my fingers and toes just to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> she might not have done that otherwise, I guess. But. Yeah. <laughs> just like a, um, so my mom was my inspiration. She always encouraged us to be curious about the world around us and to learn about the world around us. And... So I knew, I just knew that I wanted to go into science and I found this program at Rutgers University and there are so many major pharmaceutical companies that are based in New Jersey and a lot of them right around the Rutgers campus and they would partner with the, with the college to provide equipment or resources. And so the biotechnology program at Rutgers is quite good and quite advanced. We did, you know, things like nucleotide sequence analysis and stuff when that was just starting to become big. So I, I really enjoyed my college experience. I will um, I will cop to almost failing out. Was <laughs> oh, that right? Yeah, I I was also a, the- a big theater nerd. Just you know the sets and the lights and the costumes, and I tried to do both in college and found out that you really can't do a full scientific course load in college and also spend really late nights trying to run a theater production. So right. um, I, I made a choice at some point. You know, I, I was like, well, I, I need to get this degree. And so I stopped doing theater and really focused on my studies and I think managed to pull myself, my GP up pretty impressively. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like it all worked out for you. Did, did you um, do any internships as part of your undergrad? Oh, yeah. So I, yeah, funnily enough, I found my first internship internship through a temp agency. I had signed up at a, as a temp agency to work spring breaks and summers. And first they had me filing at medical offices. And then they called me one before one summer and said, oh, we have a, a opportunity at this uh, startup, biotech startup in the town um, next to mine. And, you know, do you want to do that? And I was like, oh, that'd be so great. So I interviewed and I got in and I have to tell you that internship, it was a diabetes drug development company. 
that internship taught me more about what it is to do research than any of the college classes I ever took. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that hand, really... hands-on experience, I guess, is really important. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was really fortunate. I got paired with somebody who was a true mentor. He taught me how to pipette. He taught me how to do concentration calculations and cassette dosing and rats and just tons and tons of knowledge that he shared with me. Um, and I did it for all of the summers, like I think for my sophomore year until I graduated. They unfortunately didn't have a, a permanent position for me when I graduated, but that internship got me my job after college, the connections there. So you had connections, I guess, and then you also had the experience to, mm -hmm. to to get that job. And so, and what was that experience like then, working in that job? It was good. So again, it was a spinoff biotech company from Yale University. Funnily enough, even though I majored in biology, I ended up doing analytic chemistry, uh, HPLC, high performance mm -hmm. liquid chromatography, because that's what I did my internship in. So that's the skill I had, <laughs> and it was it was small. It's a small, scrappy startup. And it was fun. You know, everyone was really fun to work with. This was the one though where, you know, two of my lab mates moved on and then it was just me. So it was a bit lonely in the actual lab. I did though, it was my first experience with good laboratory practice, GLP, because they were doing clinical trials. And so that's where I really honed my teeth on being able to work in that really regulated type of environment, which was very different. <laughs> Lots of checking, cross-checking things like that. And then you worked at Pfizer for a little while, right? Yeah, I did. I got pulled into Pfizer again at, through a recruiting company for somebody who was going on maternity leave. And, you know, the small startup was great. And I was really craving that experience of working at a large pharmaceutical company. And Pfizer at the time had a huge campus in Groton, Connecticut. And I worked for their high throughput screening group, which would get a target from um, one of the therapeutic areas, and then would develop a high throughput screen to screen all of the compounds in Pfizer's compound library. And so again, it was it was interesting in that you got a new project every six months or so. And Pfizer, I mean, Pfizer knew how to support their scientists. Like I never cleaned any glassware. I would just order things and they just show up. I mean, they really wanted the scientists to focus just on the science, which was really nice. It felt a little disconnected. You know, I think most scientists go into science to change the world. <laughs> and right. you, I would never, I'll, I'll still never know if anything I worked on ever became a drug because we'd hand it off. If we got any hits in this screen, you'd hand it off to the medicinal chemist and you'd just never see it again. Yeah. So, yeah, it felt a little disjointed from what I had, you know, my childhood imaginings of what a scientist does. <laughs> Yeah. And so, and so based on experiences like that, I guess you then started looking at uh, maybe going to uh, public health mm -hmm. to, to have kind of more of an impact or to, to see the impact of your work. Yeah. I want to see the impact of the work. And, and to be honest, I also wanted to travel, right? I wanted yeah. to, to be able to work uh, overseas. And so for those two, those two things combined, I started looking at public health programs and I found one at George Washington University that had just started, and it combined public health courses with more sort of hard science microbiology courses. And I thought that that was a really interesting idea to take the epidemiology and combine it with the lab work. And so I applied and got in and was in the first cohort to graduate from that particular degree program, which was fun. Yeah. 
And when you um when you got out of undergrad, just to go back there for a second. Mm-hmm. What w- was your? Did you have a long term goal? Were you just an- anticipating working in the lab uh, as a research associate or something similar, or had you looked out five or ten or fifteen years or anything? Or actually, someone had put a little bug in my head that I should go to med school. So I took the MCATs, took it twice because the first time was a disaster, and you know was applying to medical schools. And, you know, I think part of the decision to do my master's was like, oh, maybe it'll be more, make me more competitive to go to med school. But halfway through my master's, I just realized that that's not what I wanted to do. Uh, Yeah, I really enjoyed the research and I I didn't really want to do all that school, (laughs) so much school (laughs) before you could, because, you know, if you want to be an infectious disease doctor, then it's med school and a residency and a fellowship like it's just such a long road at that at that time i was really entranced and ensconced in this world of parasitology the the group microbiology group at gw uh, was a lot of parasitologists and i was just so fascinated by parasites and the immune response to parasites and so uh, to me it and I can't, because people ask me, I can't really explain exactly why. I was just like, I was halfway through, I think it was my fourth round of med school applications. And I was just like, I'm, I don't want to do this. <laughs> wow. So you went through four, four cycles of that. Yeah. Oh, so, t- so brutal. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> I guess three um, and a half. I didn't actually finish the fourth one. <laughs> okay. 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 So, so, so then you went through the, the public health program, you got your master's, uh, mm-hmm. and then got a job at the CDC. And did that for a couple of years, and then again decided to return to school to get your PhD. What, what was what happened with that? Yeah, so the the role at the CDC was a fellowship. I'm a huge proponent of fellowships. They allow you to experience um, a role or an or, and an organization, and they're a bit they're a bit low risk, right? If you don't like it, then do they have a definitive cutoff time. If you do like it, you're already in the organization. And so it's easier to network within an organization if you want to stay. So the CDC had an emerging infectious disease fellowship, basically a fellowship for what I did my master's in. And it was it was to kind of bring in young talent that had both some public health and some laboratory training. So uh, and you could within the fellowship you could either do it at a state public health facility in one of the states or at the CDC down in Atlanta. And I joined down in Atlanta in a parasitology lab and had a really amazing experience. My mentor was, I, I really have been so fortunate in my mentors over the year, my years. My mentor at the CDC was just this very smart and very caring man who really was very serious about his role as a mentor. And I got to go down to Haiti and lead my own project down there. I got to develop, try to, you know, start off developing some diagnostics for parasites. It was, it was a really good experience. And while I was there, I was sort of noticing how the CDC set up and how it worked. And it was really clear that if you didn't have a terminal degree, then you kind of got stuck mm-hmm. at some point in your career. And so uh, a master's in MS is not considered a terminal degree. Uh, you know, a master's in public health has a, a bit more of that designation. So I was like, well, is this, is this what's going to happen? Like if I get my, if I, you know, stay with my master's, am I always going to be doing somebody else's research? Am I not going to be able to lead anything really on my own? And so I, I 
came to the realization that getting that PhD, having those three letters after my name was probably going to be really helpful for me in the future. Yeah. And what did that feel like needing to go back to school again? I mean, at this point, you'd worked for two years. You were mm -hmm. then in, in the master's program for two years. Then you did your fellowship for two years and you're signing on for another, you know, probably at least four years mm -hmm. uh, to get your PhD. Was that, what, what was that like? It was really scary. I, you know, funnily enough, it, the thing that scared me the most was having to do the dissertation. I was like, oh, I don't want to have to write something that long. Right. <laughs> it just felt big and scary when I started out. And you know, I've been very strategic in, in most of my decisions around my career. It looks like I've bounced around a lot because I have, but all of those decisions have been for a reason. And I was equally strategic with the PhD. My initial thought was to go over to Europe where PhDs are a lot less time and ran up against uh, funding issues to be able to do that. So I applied to the NIH has a wonderful graduate partners program where they partner with select universities and you can do your coursework at the university and then do your research at the NIH. And GW was one of those universities. And what that meant was that I could be free of a whole year of coursework because I had already taken those exact classes for my master's degree. So it free, freed me up a bit to make the process go a little bit faster. Yeah. So you were more you were worried about the dissertation, but you weren't worried about the passage of time and, and that kind of thing. Oh, oh no, I was. Well, you were too, I, mean, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I was definitely one of the older people in, not necessarily at GW, but actually in, within the NIH cohort of graduate students. And I, I distinctly remember sitting down one time in my boss's office and just looking at him and being like, we got to get this going. I'm no spring chicken. This can't take me another four years. <laughs> he just looked at me kind of funny and was like, no, seriously, <laughs> we have to figure this out. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And I think you had told me that you had uh, had a, when you went into grad school, that you were, you had no intention of doing a postdoc. So you knew that up front and, and, mm -hmm. and talked to your advisor about that. So mm -hmm. how, how, how was that? You know, I, again, uh, my, my advisor was really supportive. He had never had a graduate student before and was a medical doctor himself. And so didn't have a preconceived notion of what that process should look like or what I should do after my PhD, which I think allowed him to be more open to me kind of walking in there and being like, I don't want to continue to do bench work after this. You know, I, I really want to take this skill set and, and still serve science, but serve it in a different way. And he allowed me to you know, take time out of my, you know, research work days to, to gain other skill sets. As long as I was still getting the, the experiments done, he was like, yeah, go ahead, go, go find something else to, to sort of cross train yourself during this time. So really supportive. And that was something else I really want, I wanted to ask you as well was, you know, if you were, so you were going into the PhD really to be able to take on positions of greater, you know, to have a bigger leadership role and in terms of thinking about what positions you would have afterwards, how proactive were you about acquiring these other skills uh, mm -hmm. outside of the lab to, to be competitive for those, since it would be kind of, in a way, changing um, or going off the, the normal path for people? Yeah, I was very proactive. <laughs> so first, I mean, again, huge advocate of the informational interview. I did hundreds of them, Yeah. Um, always ending with, who else do you think I should talk to? <laughs> Right. Because as I'm sure you've experienced through their podcast, people love talking about themselves. So most people won't say no if you even cold email them and say, hey, I saw you at this conference or 
I saw you in this publication. I think what you do is super interesting. Do you have 20 minutes to talk to me about what you do and how you do it and how you got there? Vast majority of people will say yes. I also, again, used connections from my master's degree to get connected with a a kind of a startup science policy institute that was just getting going. And because I I really thought I was going to do science policy. And yeah, I kind of got, got in the ground floor and volunteered for them almost the entire time I did my PhD. And it was, it was really fun. It's a really fun thing to do. Okay. And then, so you, you went through your PhD then and uh, you didn't mm-hmm. get a job, I guess, at the Gates, but you maybe had a competing offer there too. How did that process go about finding your job? So, so interestingly, I, I found my, my job right after my PhD at a job fair, which I know almost n- nobody does. But <laughs> I went to a job fair at my university and there's a representative there from the FDA. And at the time, they were hiring a lot of PhDs. They probably still are. They really value that skill set. And it was an interesting department within FDA that was more about communications and how the FDA communicates its decision-making process around drug approvals. And so they offered me a, again, kind of a fellowship position. Hiring into the government's really difficult. So there's a lot of like, here's a short-term fellowship to see if you will work, but also so then you have the experience to be able to fill the requirements for the actual government job posting. So I started there. I had applied for the Gates Fellowship already and hadn't heard anything. So I just assumed that that was a done done deal. It wasn't going to be a no. And then several months into my time at the FDA, I heard back from Gates and they flew me out for an interview. And then I heard that they were going to offer me, again, a fellowship. And I went back and forth and back and forth and just ultimately decided that, you know, if I really wanted to talk about impact, if I wanted to talk about global health, if that's where I wanted the focus of my career to be, then I couldn't say no to the Gates opportunity. Yeah. So, and funnily enough, you know, I, I think obviously, you know, my, my bosses at the FDA were disappointed and, you know, I think they understood too. And it's not, it's not a decision I regret at all. Okay. And then, so, so you did that, then you worked at the Hutch and those were great experiences for you, it mm-hmm. sounds like. And then as we talked about earlier, you've kind of transitioned now into working as a freelancer. And one of the reasons for doing that uh, was to have more time to pursue other creative endeavors. Uh, one of mm-hmm. which is this podcast that you host uh, called yeah. Luxi. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, during the pandemic, I had a lot of conversations about science with people and those were hard conversations and it was a hard time. You know, it was a time where science felt very scary, you know, let's talk about viruses, let's talk about vaccines, but not in some abstract way, you know, in this, you know, this, this is really happening to us right now kind of way. And I got very, I think, emotionally burnt out by it. And I was like, well, when I was a kid, science was just so full of, of wonder and curiosity and, it was such a happy place for me. And I was like, how can I recapture some of that? And I just, I decided I'd started a a blog and and one of my favorite blog blog posts to write was about the science of champagne. And I was like, well, maybe I could just keep doing this. You know, I like fancy things. I like shiny things. I was that person that wore heels in the lab, close-toed heels, of course, but still heels. (laughs) Um, and I was like, well, maybe I could just kind of smush together these two seemingly disparate interests of mine 
And my husband had a radio show in college, so he's my audio engineer, which is helpful. <laughs> I didn't have to learn how to edit audio or anything. And then he's joined me as a co-host because he has a wonderful voice for radio and is also a scientist. He's an electrical engineer. And that's kind of how it all started. And I wouldn't have had time if I had stayed at my previous job. I think being a freelancer has really opened up the flexibility for me, both as the mother of of a small child and as somebody who really wants to reincorporate creativity into both my professional and personal life. Yeah. If you could go back in time and meet your younger self, what would you say? What would I say? I'd say, don't think you have to be one thing. I'd always loved to write as a child and it felt like I decided on the science course to the exclusion of the creative aspects of me. And I think I would want to reintegrate those earlier in life than I am, than, than in my forties. <laughs> yes. Well, it's never, it's never too late. No, that is true. Yeah. Uh, some of the rationale that you had for going to, to graduate school, mm -hmm. both graduate schools, I mm -hmm. guess, was to be able to be in positions with greater responsibility and to have more leadership. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how, how you're working as a contractor has impacted those those things? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I, I did lead a team when I was at Fred Hutch, and that really was such a fulfilling experience for me. I really enjoyed that. It was hard to give up. And other, I have to say, I have espoused and I think lived this philosophy of anybody can lead yeah. um, my whole life. Right? You don't have to have that as part of your title to to be a leader and and i and also we don't have to just lead in our professional lives right I, I think one of the interesting things about american society is our focus on the workplace as our identity and I, i'm seeing this happen you know, this shift happen post pandemic of uncoupling that a little bit and i am all for it right we can lead in other aspects of your life you can lead in volunteer work you can lead you know in church shift that's your thing. You can, you know, lead anywhere. And, and so I'm finding ways to incorporate that in other aspects of my life that are not necessarily related to my career. And also, you know, finding little ways to do it within my career. So it's always there. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I don't regret the PhD at all. I mean, it, it sounds like it was just a means to an end, but I, I really did love my research and my lab and the opportunity to do that. And, and I think what it really helped me to understand was what my, my real skill set is, right? I, am a, I was an okay scientist, but that wasn't actually my best science-related skill set. My best science-related skill set is, is other things like, you know, project management and people management and leadership. And, and those are equally valuable within the science community and I think not talked about enough. Yeah, no, for sure. There's this focus on, on, on just strictly the lab work, right? And, and the publication mm -hmm. and, you know, the figures and all of that. And all these other things are, or some of these other things are, are really, even just mentoring, you know, or, or managing yes. are, are not, are, are overlooked a lot of the time in terms of their oh, value. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many times have you been in an organization where people get promoted because they're technically very good, but are actually not good people managers? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It's a very common uh, kind of cultural narrative, actually, as, as yes. well. Can you comment on kind of the fear of falling behind when taking an alternative path or for, for checking out 
Oh, alternative yeah. paths. And because I think a lot of people do have this fear like, oh, I, I'm running out of time. I'm going to fall behind mm -hmm. something else or someone else. Um, mm -hmm. what, do you have any thoughts on that? <sighs> Comparing yourself to others. That's, it's so hard. I work so hard to, to not do that. Right. And you know, for me, it wasn't necessarily the fear of falling behind because I didn't really have a, a time frame uh, associated with what I wanted to do. For me, what's been really challenging is letting go of the societal expectation of what a scientist looks like, right? Yeah. Especially working where I work now, surrounded with just brilliant expertise. And again, this deep expertise that you expect from a scientist, and which, which you are trained to do as a PhD. You're an expert in one teeny tiny little microscopic you know, bit of a field of science when you're doing your PhD. And so for me, it's been really hard to let go of that vision of how I should be and the expectations of what a scientist should look like. And to understand that I bring value in my more general experience and that as a generalist, there is a lot I can contribute. And even though that's not necessarily valued by the field, I can find value in it and, and work from there. But it, is, it has definitely been a struggle for sure. How do you uh, deal with that struggle? What do, uh, yeah, how, how do you, uh, how, how do you cope with that? How, how do you address that? Well, um, I had a career coach and she helped a lot. Okay. <laughs> really honest. She was great. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and the fun thing about contracting is you can decide who you, I mean, you can decide who you want to work with anyway, but contracting, you really get to decide who you want to work with. Right. And, and there is this kind of ego boost that comes with contracting. Like, hey, somebody wants to hire me. <laughs> this is great. For, like this really specific project because you feel a very specific need that they don't otherwise have in their organization, right? So I, I think that's helped too. And a lot of it is just consciously decoupling myself from other people's opinions of my work mattering more than my opinion of my work. Yeah. And focusing on my values. You know, my with my career coach, we went through and we created, you know, what are my core values? And as long as the work is aligning with my core values, then I I can feel good about it. When did you see the career coach? At what point during your career? Oh, when I first um became a uh, people manager, I got thrust and I never managed anybody in my entire life and then inherited a, a team of 40 when I first started at oh, Hard Hut. Okay. Yeah, 40 statisticians too. I was like, oof. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't have a statistical background, so I really had to prove my chops and, uh, you know, then switched to a, a slightly smaller team, but still a team of 10 people. And I just knew that I couldn't do it on my own, that I needed help. And so it started off as leadership coaching and then as we went through and, and my leadership skills got better, we, we branched out into other, other areas, including this idea of work identity and personal identity and, and you know, aligning your values with your work and how rewarding that can be. I mean, you can love an organization, you can love the people you work with, but if fundamentally, if that work doesn't align with your values, then something's going to feel off. Well, Alexis, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing all your thoughts and your insights and your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I had such a wonderful time. Thank you for inviting me.